0: Hi, I'm Sally. This is The Service Design Show, episode
1: 169. Hi, my name is Mark Fontaine, and welcome back to a brand new episode of The Service Design Show. On this show, we explore what's beneath the surface of service design. What are those invisible things that make all the difference between success and failure? All to help you make great services happen that have a positive impact on people, business, and our planet. Our guest in this episode is Sally Halls. Sally is the head of the Policy Lab in the UK. Having years of experience working in the public sector, Sally is going to share a different side of service design with us. But let me start by introducing the theme of this episode with a question. Take a moment to think about the public services that you use in your country. What comes to mind? Services like getting your driving license or your travel documents? Maybe voting registration or paying taxes? Yes, these are all public services delivered by our governments. Now let's consider the day-to-day services being done in the background to keep our cities running smoothly. Keeping our roads safe, providing education and collecting garbage. These are all services that the government has the task to provide. Now imagine not having the right policies in place to protect our countries, secure our economies, or even travel around freely. This brings us to the topic of this episode. You're going to learn about the three types of public services that need to be designed for, and how the differences between these services impact your work as a service design professional if you stick around till the end of this episode you'll know how to design services that people haven't explicitly asked for how service design professionals are bringing the voice of the public into rooms of policy making and how you can find fulfillment in your work when working on multi-year projects of which the impact isn't immediately visible. As you'll hear in this conversation with Sally, getting buy-in for service design from your clients and stakeholders can be challenging. It's often hard to find the right words at the right time and say them in the right way so that people start caring about your work. It's really frustrating when you know that you can add value and make a positive contribution to a project, but can't communicate it in a way that others see this as well especially when the other people are the ones who are holding the budgets or deciding on the agenda regardless whether you're working with external clients or internal stakeholders in the end it's all the same now wouldn't it be great if you could have better more productive conversations with business stakeholders who value your contributions if you would have a simple, no BS language that helps non-designers to quickly understand the benefits of your work, and if you could get to work on more interesting challenges where you actually have a say in the important decisions. Well, that's exactly what I want to help you with in the Selling Service Design with Confidence program. It's an eight-week program where you're going to learn why finding buy-in for service design seems so hard and of course, how you can fix that. You're going to learn practical frameworks and tools that help you to close the gap between business and design once and for all. And you'll learn how to communicate this message in a way that aligns with who you are and do it with confidence. The truth is that many professionals who joined the program don't have a formal service design degree. They learned most of what they know by themselves on the job and at some point almost everyone starts to question, am I doing it right? That's why in this program you'll become part of an intimate community of professionals who are on the exact same journey as you. You'll be able to look over their shoulder and see how they approach the practice. This not only gives you a benchmark on how well you're doing, but also gives you a fresh new perspective on how things could be done. Next to all the lessons and exercises, this community aspect has proven to be an invaluable part of the program and something that is really hard to find anywhere else. So if you want to grow as a service design professional and take the next step in your career, I invite you to join us in the program. The deadline to apply for the first cohort of 2023 is March 24 as always there is a limited number of seats available so if you want to increase the chance of securing a spot make sure you send in your application sooner than later and depending on when you're listening to this episode you potentially could still benefit from the early bird registration fee which lets you sign up for the program at a discounted price for all the details about the program and instructions on how to apply head over to servicedesignshow.com confidence so that's servicedesignshow.com confidence and you'll also find the link in the show notes of this episode that about wraps it up for the intro now it's time to sit back relax and enjoy the conversation with sally halls let the show begin and welcome to the show sally
0: hi good to be here
1: yeah uh excited to have you on um Interesting topic. I don't think we've covered it that many times. Uh, We'll uh, explain what the topic is in a second. But Sally, uh, the first thing I always start with uh, in these conversations is a short introduction to give some context to uh, who we are listening to, so could you share, uh, shine a light on uh, who you are and what you do these days?
0: Yeah, sure. So I'm Sally Hors. Uh, I am a service designer. Currently, I'm in a role where I'm heading up the policy lab at a government department. And that enables us to bring service design methods into the policy making space. So we get a very different experience of service design and a very different experience of the kind of services that we work on.
1: Mm, yeah, uh, quite a unique environment from what uh, I already learned from you in our prior conversations to this conversation. So uh I'm looking forward to exploring that a bit more. Before we do that, we also have a lightning round. Uh, I have five questions for you uh, to get to know you a bit better as a person uh, next to the professional. Just the first thing that comes to your mind. Sure. Uh, and we'll, we won't dive deeper into them, but uh, let's see where this takes us. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Sally, what's always in your fridge?
0: Always in my fridge? Uh, Butter and oat milk, I think. (laughs)
1: All right. Uh, What's your favorite holiday destination?
0: (laughs) Oh, any kind of a warm beach with a sea that I can swim in. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: Especially now that we're recording uh, this in the middle of winter. Yes. Um, If you could recommend one book, which book would you recommend?
0: I am reading at the moment, I'm reading Hello World, How to be Human in the Age of the Machine. And that's by Hannah Fry. And it's really fascinating. It's all about data science and algorithms and actually how they're currently being used in our society and really helping me to think about how we can start to kind of bring some of those principles into our work. So, uh,
1: link in the show notes, as always. Um, Sally, what did you want to become when you were a kid?
0: Oh, uh the first thing i remember wanting to be was a librarian which is uh, not very exciting <laughs> but uh, i've always been a big reader so uh, i guess it opens your horizons right <laughs> mm. hmm.
1: uh, and uh, last and final question which is a tradition here on the show is uh do you recall the first time you learned about service design
0: Yeah, I think it was when I was studying, or when I was in my first job. So I actually studied industrial design, and back then, service design wasn't really a thing. It was just starting to be a thing, and you kind of heard it, heard you know, heard it whispered about on the grapevine. And I was very intrigued by it, and um, and was very fortunate enough to actually be able to become a service designer over the years, and and here we are.
1: (laughs) Everybody seems to have a story around their encounter with Dihang, which is uh, which is quite interesting. Thank you for sharing uh, the answers to the lightning round questions. Um, definitely give some uh, context. Uh, but let's transition into the theme and topic of today. Um, like I said, it's something that surprisingly hasn't been covered a lot in the conversations on the show as far as I can remember. And that is, um, we're going to explore different types of services Uh, somehow we don't get to discuss what services actually are on the show a lot we do talk a lot about the craft and the tools the methods the conditions in which service design takes place or in which it can thrive but we rarely actually talk about services so this is going to be our opportunity to do so and um (laughs) You uh, framed it really nicely by giving, um, um, I would say a framework of three different types of services. Maybe we can start with that. And what are the three services types of services that you distinguish?
0: Uh, So I think that normal, normal services, the things that we kind of identify as services are what I would call transactional services. So there is a very clear ask from the user of, I am trying to achieve something. And I will, you know, perform some actions. I may pay you some money in order to achieve that outcome. And I think that's probably the bread and butter of service design work, really. And I think services are quite difficult to talk about, anyway, because they are so intangible, aren't they? Um, and so it becomes quite difficult this conversation to have when you are trying to kind of pin down what a service is. But you know, typically we're talking about, you know. I want to access healthcare. I want to see a doctor. Or I want to be able to save my money with a bank, or you know, I want to be able to purchase a book and have it arrive within twenty-four hours, right? Which is, uh, you know, the, what we are all used to and expect these days. But um, once you start to move away from the private sector and those kind of services, and you start to think about public sector and what the government delivers, you start to encounter some slightly different services. So. In the department i work in uh, we deliver what we call what i call preventative services so these are the services that help us to you know live our day-to-day lives and you know maintain a kind of normal state of society as you would expect so for example you know i am able to walk the streets safely i am able to you know go out and and feel confident that i can come home again you know and um and these are the kind of services that there is no explicit ask from the user there is just the expectation of what the norm is and actually it's when these services disappear when you don't deliver these services that then you start to notice that these services were being delivered for you um and then the third kind of services i wanted to talk about was around from a service design perspective they are an arm's length services so there are services that you are commissioning so actually you know government departments they actually commission a lot of services they don't deliver those services themselves they ask other agencies other bodies other companies to deliver those services but as a service designer the tools that you suddenly have to design those services become very very different and so i thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit around you know, what do we do as a service designer? How do you ensure that your service is delivering a successful outcome when you're not able to do any of the service blueprinting? You're not able to talk to the users directly yourself.
1: Yeah, because that's the case, for instance, where those services are at arm's length and delivered and maybe uh, where the journey is designed by a third party uh, and you don't, like... You're commissioning them, like yeah. you said, right? Yeah. yeah so the, I can imagine that that's a different dynamic, and the preventative services, um, uh, I do see a lot of them in the public sector. I, mm. The thing in my head was garbage collection. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's one of those things uh, that you sort of take for granted almost. Mm. Maybe that's uh, maybe yeah. that's a characteristics of these kind of services that you take them for granted and. Um, once they disappear or break down, or the garbage collectors go on strike, then you sort of suddenly notice, hey, so th- I, I was actually consuming a service. Um, yeah. And those are these preventative, hidden uh, services, and the uh, the the common ones, like you mentioned, the tra- transactional services, are the ones that we are most exposed to as a service mm-hmm. design community,
0: right? Yeah, absolutely. And because there is a much clearer relationship with the end user, you have a clarity around, this is the user, this is what they're asking for, and I will work through these steps in order to deliver this for you. And I think as soon as it becomes a preventative services or the arm's length, that relationship breaks down, and that, and so it becomes more difficult to talk about, I think.
1: Um, I have some questions around that, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, first I would love to explore that um, in our uh prior conversation um, and in your notes, I saw that you mentioned something about that there is uh, some confusion and uh, maybe misconceptions around these preventative services.
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, preventative services, they are often discussed in different ways. So within government I would say they're not traditionally thought of as services and we often talk about them as capabilities and so for example do we have the capability to detect explosives at the airports for example and the way in which you talk about things really dictates the way you think about them and then the way that you th- you seek to kind of manage them and improve them. And obviously you know we're all very familiar with airports and having to queue to go through airport security and actually when you talk about do we have the capability to you know detect explosives yes we do we have all these machines and and they're able to scan and what have you but when you frame it differently when you start to put humans into that equation you start to think in terms of can we ensure that everyone can you know get on their plane and make it to their destination safely without encountering explosives and you know can we do this in a quick and efficient way and you start to think about well what is the human experience of that how can we better improve that and you start to think of it much more as a service and then and through that you can then start to implement you know service metrics and start to look at customer experience etc.
1: Any idea or clue or hunch on why uh, the language is more focused on capabilities and, and maybe uh, uh, having the right tools rather than providing a service like is there a historic context that explains this
0: it's a good question um, i mean often these are capabilities that are being delivered by operational teams and so you know you have people who are you know performing the same task day in day out and they're not being seen as um you know a skilled service that is being delivered there is absolutely a whole skill set that you know these teams need to have in order to deliver those kind of actions and tasks but because it is being seen as an operation that a government is delivering i think it then you know Government services have been going through a bit of a, you know, a revolution over the past however many years, particularly in the UK. And, you know, there's been a real transition between how we think about our interactions with the public. And so, you know, GDS, Government Digital Services, they were kind of, you know, the people that really initiated the change and helped government think differently about the services that we're delivering for our users. You know, all of our policies, actually, they end up being delivered as services, and that's how government interacts with the public. And I think it's just a continuation of that. So we started with the most visible services, and you know, it's a slow, it's a slow change. You're trying to move a, a very big ship and turn the ship around, and and the operational, you know, operational staff. And those kind of hidden services are at the back of the mm. of that big boat, I would say. Mm.
1: Yeah, and uh, I've worked in the public sector in the Netherlands on some service design projects, and one of the things you often hear is like, um, it's a it's a monopoly on these services, and you can't choose, like paying taxes, <clears throat> uh, right? There's yeah. there's just one entity you can go to, and uh, well, the same probably goes for your garbage collection, but. Yeah. Uh, you also uh, uh, mentioned that uh, for these arm's length services, it's harder to talk to the user. I'm I'm curious, what are some of the uh, specific challenges that you see um, around these preventative and hidden services? Like what makes it more difficult or challenging for a service design professional to work on these preventative services? Let's focus on those first.
0: Sure, so I think Uh, with preventative services you are often you know designing for the whole public and there is no specific user and so there are no specific needs and so it becomes because you're designing for everybody you're almost designing for nobody if that makes sense Um, and and so it also then becomes challenging to have those conversations with you know the service providers, with the people whose you know buy in that you need and whose opinions you need to change to help them kind of understand well we're trying to help people, for example, i don't know, with the border force, you know you're you're saying, well actually, we're trying to prevent dangerous materials from coming into the country so that the entire population can live in a kind of peaceful, secure, safe country, right? And so it's a, it's a very high level objective and that can make it quite hard to then tie the activities that staff are doing, the day-to-day activities with kind of tangible, measurable outcomes. And so, you know, that might be the vision, I guess, and then you need to start to break it down into much smaller kind of objectives and targets where you can then start to tie the activities to those outcomes that makes sense
1: yeah it makes absolute sense and uh like the 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 feedback loop is um w- less strict or less connected or i don't know what mm. the right word is but you sort of uh like uh being uh, at the security uh, and uh, doing border control like it's really hard to feel that you're contributing to uh sense of safety inside the country like that's that's a pretty um yeah pretty loose feedback loop right
0: yeah absolutely and you know are they getting any feedback right actually is that feedback coming in and there are so many other factors as well it's such a kind of complex problem right and so how can you tie this action that you are performing over here to this kind of bigger initiative
1: what does this mean for you as a service design professional? How do you how do you handle these situations?
0: I mean it's difficult, right? It's it's always a lot of what we do as service designers is often kind of advocating for a, a different way of thinking, a kind of a, a mindset that kind of, you know, puts the customer first and helps, you know, realign the services and how they are being delivered around kind of delivering to those user needs and it and it is the same as that it's just an extension right so you know we are still trying to achieve an outcome for a user it's just a little bit more removed but you can still go through some of those same service design activities and you can really help to kind of I don't know even just bringing the conversation into the room sometimes just achieves a bit of a different mindset because until that point you might find that a lot of the people in the room hadn't even thought about it in that way you know they've been they've been looking at productivity outputs right like how many decisions are you making a week or you know how many discoveries are you making a week or you know xyz right and and that's a very different metric to how safe do our citizens feel right And so I think just helping to bring in that bigger picture and helping to kind of elevate the kind of the horizon that people are looking at is probably a really useful role that we play as service designers.
1: Uh, Related to this, I'm um, Mm. I'm curious, like... uh, Let's say uh, you a new colleague starts in your team tomorrow, and uh, yeah. they are coming from an agency or consultancy side, having uh, primarily been exposed to these uh, transactional services, these co- the commercial sector. Like, what would be some of the things that you uh, have them do first, or maybe uh, some lessons that you first would share with them in their onboarding process to? Uh, yeah to get them up to speed
0: yeah um i mean it's a challenge that we uh, are constantly uh (laughs) encountering as we onboard more staff so um i mean the first thing we ask them to do is to kind of go through some of the policy making training to understand actually what do our policy colleagues experience um because that immediately gives you a different sense of what the job is, right? These are the people that we are working alongside and these are the things that they are being asked to deliver. And our role is then to support them. Um, we also, uh, you know, we have to brief them in all the different kind of policy areas that we work in. And each of those areas comes with a very different mindset, very different culture. And uh, and that brings with it a different way of working, a different way of engaging with the stakeholders. And then, um, once they become familiar with the policy areas, then you can start to talk about, well, actually, what are the ways in which we are working? How are the ways in which we're able to make an impact? And, I mean, we don't have all the answers. We're still learning, you know, and every day we encounter new problems and new challenges that, you know, we have to feel our way into. But, you know, it's always interesting, (laughs) that's for sure. Yeah, I
1: can imagine. This... um... There was one question on my mind that uh, also comes from my experience with working with the with public services is that
0: mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> have you found a way to sort of uh, celebrate success? And what I mean with that is, again, like you said, you mostly notice these services when they start lacking or they start malfunctioning. Um, so yeah if you're redesigning the garbage collection service uh, I found that it can be really hard to sort of uh, find pride and find joy and find a sense of mm-hmm. fulfillment and that you're doing a good job because like you you can almost only fail like what's your what's your take on that
0: yeah it's a really good question I mean I think it's fair to say you know it's work can be quite challenging and um it can take a while for the impact of your work to kind of manifest so you know some you know explorative work we can do you know it might take for some policy colleagues it might take a year two years for that actually to kind of manifest in a policy outcome and then it takes you know a further amount of time for them that to kind of actually be experienced as services by members of the public but you have to take success as you know changing an opinion as you know influencing a decision towards what will achieve a better outcome and those are the things that kind of it's the ripple effect right actually if you have someone at the top making the right decision then the impact of that will then impact you know hundreds thousands millions of people depending on you know what that service is so
1: yeah i so it's way harder for you to actually evaluate if services are improving because it just can take a very long time before they ripple out into uh, before the general public starts to see the effect and like who will say that the garbage collection has actually become better, like that that <laughs> yeah. it's it's just one, of, but where your your measure of success is, are we seeing decisions being made that are more in line with uh uh I don't know how in more in line with how would you describe that
0: I would say are, are the decisions actually do we think the decisions are actually gonna have a better outcome for the service users for the members of the public and you know a lot of our work is about evidencing the decisions that need to be taking and helping senior people to understand this is what the public are experiencing at the moment and actually if we take these steps that will improve it in this way and often that can be counter to you know what is currently being considered and so, if we can change that opinion, then we have gathered the right evidence, and we have created a compelling case to ensure that the right outcomes are going to be met
1: and when you mention evidencing, what can you can you color that a bit like how do you do that? What is that?
0: Sure, I mean, a lot of it is around kind of understanding what uh, users members of the public are experiencing at the moment, so you know, through deep dive interviews we will often then you know kind of we'll we'll still do the journey mapping kind of understanding the experience the end-to-end experience uh of those people and typically you'll find that you know the service that they're experiencing is being delivered by multiple you know agencies and teams and companies and what have you and so often we are there to kind of help join all of those silos together and to kind of really help those teams to understand the problem in the whole and the different levers that are available and you know policymakers will typically see opportunities in terms of policy opportunities but they may not necessarily be so connected with how it's being operationalized or how you know the kind of digital and technology solutions and actually those are all levers that can help kind of build momentum and build kind of change towards the policy outcomes that they are looking to deliver. Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, in my, in the way I I would summarize this is one is you're bringing in the voice of the public inside the organization, even more than it is maybe already there. Um, And the other thing is you're uh, looking at what you're delivering from a more holistic uh cross department silo Mm. breaking perspective that that's at least the two things that i'm getting from your story
0: yeah i think that's (laughs) probably right yeah and then (laughs) thank you for (laughs) interpreting yeah
1: you can use this uh recording to to share through the organization (laughs) but yeah that makes um that makes a lot of sense and and doing sense making and then Uh, Maybe being less involved in actually designing the actual services, but providing uh, your colleagues with the right tools, with the right insights uh, to make uh, the right or slash better decisions.
0: Yeah, that that sounds like a great summary. Thank you. (laughs) I'll use that.
1: We've talked uh, now about these preventative services, um, but you also mentioned services that are at an arm's length. I would love to dive into that also uh, a bit. And I think you gave uh, an example at the start, but maybe you can... um, uh help me to better even better understand like what are these services that are arms length
0: uh good question so i mean typically as i said a government department will commission a number of different services it's not possible for us to deliver all of those services and they can be you know varying scales so you know the police forces you know very large service right um and you know at, at a smaller end you know you've got kind of various support services that might be being delivered for kind of very Kind of much smaller populations and actually it's it's quite a challenge and it's quite a different way of thinking when you start to think about well we are commissioning this service and how do we ensure that they are achieving success so um if i let's let's take an example right if i was to ask you to ask Let's say we've had some news in that, you know, children aren't walking to school anymore and, you know, we're kind of seeing all sorts of kind of obesity problems with them. And actually, how can we encourage children to start walking to school, right? So we think, okay, well, we need to, how can we help them? We'll we'll commission some kind of, you know, help walk your children to school service, right? And so how do I, what? If I look to commission that service, how do I know what success looks like? Am I just saying, well, I just need you to get the children to school safely, you know? And then you start to dig down a level, and you say, well, actually, I need you to get the children to school safely, and they need to be there on time. They need to be, you know, they need to be escorted by people with the suitable kind of background checks and qualifications. And actually, well, how many children can you take? And actually. What are all the kind of frameworks that I need to put in place in order to ensure that you can do your job correctly and safely? And, you know, what am I asking you to do? What am I contracting you to do, that makes sense? And, you know, what, what are the outcomes that I'm measuring, right, and actually the way in which, you know, it's, you're still talking about kind of service design principles, you're still, you know, looking to kind of quantify the outcomes and measure what is this kind of satisfaction and what have you but you have to do it at a a stage removed so I need to put things like that in the contract I need to think about actually how am I governing your service right what are the meetings that we have when do I touch base with you how are you reporting back to me on how well the service is going you know and how can I be sure that that what you say is actually true right and and so you start to think about all of these other tools i guess that you have that you need to think about to ensure that this service over here is operating correctly and that and that we can achieve the outcomes and you know there is an extra level of responsibility i guess because it's a government department and you need to ensure you know everyone's safety and well-being but
1: yes i think so <laughs> well uh my brain always goes into uh, examples that i've seen and you mentioned the uh, walking mm. your kids to school example i uh, recently I was in a local hardware store and there yeah, they provide a service of, uh, putting uh, solar panels on your roof. But that is, uh, it's not a service from the hardware store itself. Uh, it's done by third party supplier, like under the label of the hardware store. And I'm thinking like this might be something similar where, uh, you sort of purchase the, the service through the hardware store, but it's actually delivered by a third party, um, and um when we look at that example you like what is there to design you mentioned the the, the contracts like the conditions but um let me just rephrase the question again like uh, is there something to design and is that do you feel the work of a service designer still
0: yes because the way you design the contract the way you word the contract very much impacts how the service will be delivered so if you can input into that process you can help to ensure that the service is being set up in the right way it's being managed in the right way you know and the funding agreements and how you look to fund the service can also impact you know how well that service can operate etc
1: uh we often talk about this but in this case, it's even more you're designing for the conditions in which the service can be, where you're increasing the chance of success for the service.
0: Yes, exactly. You're kind of trying to create an environment to enable the service to flourish and you're trying to create an environment that will nurture that service, right? How do you kind of set the right guidelines for that service to kind of travel down which will ensure that it won't diverge and kind of you know go off on some kind of random track and actually not achieve the outcomes that you're looking for
1: it's interesting because we do hear this uh, a lot and it's not even with arms length services but it's um it's also like designing the internal organization in order to deliver a specific service like it seems that as service design professionals we are doing a lot around designing the environment that enables a certain type of service experience to emerge. And in this case, the service might not be provided by people who are under the same roof as you, but have a different uh, logo and sticker and name on their uh, organization. But in, uh, in essence, yeah, you're still creating or designing the environment.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. And once you've created that environment, you know, then I think, you know, organization design is becoming a big thing. I think, you know, we're seeing increasing amounts of, you know, kind of projects where we are being required to think about how the organization is being set up, how it's being resourced, you know, what is the role and remit and actually what are the responsibilities of the people within that? And all of that, you know, they're all just new or different levers to ensure that you reach the outcome of you know what your service is trying to achieve.
1: What would you say is the most difficult part of designing services that you uh, describe as being at arm's length?
0: I mean you can feel quite twitchy about wanting to get stuck into the actual service you know like it's you do have to kind of it's not your role to get involved in the detail of that service your role is actually around understanding the parameters to enable that service to succeed and to ensure that those are being designed and and created correctly and often that means working with staff who are very you know colleagues who are very uh, far removed from you know your typical design colleagues they don't talk in design terminology they don't necessarily understand your design vocabulary and so you know there's a lot of relationship building kind of communication trying to understand you know when i say this word and you say this word do we mean the same thing are we aligned or are we using the same word We're totally you know cross purposes and um i mean it's, it's amazing we we are constantly aware of the need to do this and yet we are constantly finding that it's it's a challenge isn't it you know we are always uh talking at slightly cross purposes when we are really trying to achieve the same yeah. thing.
1: So. yeah i don't know if that's a specific challenge to the service design field but uh uh, it, it is yeah. uh, definitely a common theme in, uh, in our practice. what um, what would you say uh, are um, the common mistakes that you see people making when uh, you what I found interesting, uh, um, let me go back for a second. What I found interesting is that you said uh, it's uh, it's itching to get into the actual weeds of the actual service and that's not your role so, Mm-hmm. the way i i described it in my head is like you have a different design material you're not designing the service anymore but you are designing the organization or you're designing contracts governance mm-hmm. uh, calendars meetings stuff like that um and working with that other design material that that has to have a certain interest and you have to also get pleasure mm-hmm. out of that um yeah oh, What are some of the common uh, mistakes or pitfalls that you see uh, maybe people getting into this kind of work making when they are not being able to design the actual service but rather have to work with the other design material, the organization?
0: I mean, I think a lot of it is often counterintuitive to be working at that level, I would say. You know, as a service designer, you do expect to be kind of working in the nuts and bolts of how that service operates so it feels a bit counterintuitive and, and it therefore feels a bit uncomfortable and actually that can cause us to kind of perhaps lean back a bit to kind of be a bit like oh i need to do this thing but i'm not I, I don't feel comfortable i don't feel confident and you know as with all of these things as with all the challenges that causes more issues you've got to embrace these things you've got to lean in and get involved and really start to kind of understand these new tools that we have and you know key to that is always asking questions and i feel like there is a lot of um you know we can be especially if we don't feel confident we can be very cautious about asking questions and not appearing to to look stupid and everything else and actually you know no question is ever too stupid right the stupid one is the one that you don't ask and you know and if you if you feel nervous about asking that question think about how you can reframe it right ask the question but ask it in a way that you know that kind of draws out the information but doesn't you know doesn't make you feel exposed and you know helps to kind of shed light on the situation where you can really feel able to practice and to add value and to you know really bring those skill sets that you have to a kind of very different problem area
1: now uh, if you're open to sharing i'm curious what was the last moment that you felt uncomfortable (laughs)
0: yeah uh yeah it's a very good question um I mean, we are currently uh, scoping out a new project and it's a new policy area. And every time we work in a new policy area, you know, you're working with colleagues who are so knowledgeable about this area. And your job is to get up to speed and to read all the reports in the t- past 10 years and understand all the different, uh, you know, initiatives that are happening. And all of these conversations, you're always trying to understand the scoping and the background and the context and it's always a little bit uncomfortable if i'm honest it's always you know you're always operating in the unknown and that's what we do as designers you know we are we are there to kind of operate in these kind of tricky unknown kind of problem spaces but i think i've learned to lean into the discomfort I think that was my new year's resolution for this year was to actually kind of lean into all those moments that I find uncomfortable and to really embrace that discomfort and you know and that actually part of that helps us to work better to perform better you know that's like adrenaline does help mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. keep going yeah right? that is the fun
1: <laughs> and exciting part of our work like uh being in the unknown in the unknown exploring the unknown and being comfortable with the unknown but mm-hmm. it's definitely easier said than done especially mm-hmm. when it comes to yeah. uh, uh yourself like it's easy to tell this to somebody else to your client that they need to have patience and trust the process and that everything will be all right but uh, yeah when uh, you have to uh, share this message with yourself, then uh, it's often a different story. And uh, yeah, Uh, yeah. Imposter syndrome is is very, very uh, near, as always. What, Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, if we, um, if we would have had this uh, conversation five years ago, uh, no, let me me rephrase this again. Like if you, were listening to the service design show five years ago and somebody uh, was on the show uh, having a conversation with me about uh, these types of services. What do you wish you would have heard in that conversation? Like, uh, what do you wish you would have known, I don't know, five years ago that you know now from experience?
0: I always found, you know, I always had heard about Policy Labs and I was so excited about the idea of bringing kind of our design methods and ways of working into that kind of what felt like a very more serious kind of problem space as it were and actually i think i was quite intimidated by it i think it took me a while to kind of reach a point where i felt experienced enough and confident enough to even apply right and actually you know the only way to gain the experience is to apply and to get involved and to start working in that area and you know if you're even in vaguely interested then you know absolutely get in touch with your local you know policy lab or initiative that you can find and and reach out and just show that you're interested and you know it's an incredibly exciting area to be working and it is always you know every day is really interesting there is never a dull moment so
1: yeah yeah so don't wait till you have the experience get, start and and gain the experience uh while you do the work um are there any useful resources links that uh you can recommend for people who want to dive deeper into this topic <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there is, um, in the UK, we have a policy design community where, you know, people working in this area uh, come together and so there's a kind of very active blog. So I can um, share the links for that. Uh, We also have things like the kind of open policymaking kit, which is also a website which kind of helps uh, policymakers to work in a much more open and kind of explorative way, which is quite useful for designers as well to understand, well, here, here are the ways in which we're trying to educate our policymakers. So it kind of gives you the the kind of the different way in, um, and then, I don't know, in terms of kind of government services for those, uh, who aren't aware, there's, um, down, Lou Down's book on good services is just a general kind of go to Bible and often kind of gives very good examples of kind of government services. So maybe that's a kind of entry level into kind of public sector work
1: we've discussed a lot Um, if you uh, uh, could take an an attempt to sort of summarize our conversation uh, up till this point like what would your summary be? Uh,
0: I mean I think the summary would be that there are many types of services out there which require us to kind of have different relationships with the users and engage with different tools perhaps but actually the kind of the intention behind how a service designer works always is always the same right and it's just we need to be flexible and adaptive to kind of work in these new areas and really help others to kind of embrace the service design you know ethos Mm. and uh, Mm. mindsets.
1: yeah and uh thank you for sort of highlighting uh and and double clicking on the word service because i think we need to do that more often and even develop a better understanding of the different flavors of services and the different characteristics of the different services Uh, and there's so much more to uh, learn and explore and there's already a lot of knowledge around that so uh, i hope this uh got a few people interested to dive deeper into these uh, topics and learn more about preventative services, arm's length services, and, and maybe come up with their own definitions and uh, ideas on what kind of services yeah. are there out there and what does that mean for us as a service design community. So, yeah, thank you, uh, Sally, for coming on and uh, shining uh, a light on that. We're almost at the end of the episode. I really found it eye-opening to think about the three kinds of services and how they impact our work as service design professionals. Hopefully this got you thinking as well. I want to remind you that if you're looking for a way to advance your career and become a more mature professional. The Selling Service Design with Confidence program might just be the thing that you are looking for. The program is here to help you get buy-in for service design from your key stakeholders, create a clear, compelling, and irresistible business case, and open the doors for you to work on more meaningful challenges. We have a limited number of seats available, so there is an application process before you are accepted into the program. For all the details and instructions on how to apply, head over to servicedesignshow.com confidence. Depending on when you're listening to this episode, you potentially could still benefit from the early bird registration fee, which lets you sign up for the program at a discounted price. So again, for all the details on how to apply, head over to servicedesignshow.com slash confidence. And the link is also in the show notes of this episode. My name is Mark Fultein, and I want to thank you for spending a part of your day with me. It's an absolute honor. Keep making a positive impact, and I'll catch you very soon in a brand new episode of The Service Design Show. See you then.